Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again in Palmerston, North New Zealand by the Reverend Ian Reid, otherwise known as Rido, of King's Grace Presbyterian Church. And Rido, hi. Hi, how are you, Brent? I'm very well. And uh, we're back in Palmerston. It's a while since we've, uh, we've got together to do one of these. But anyway, we're back in the Gospel of Mark today. And we're up to chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Now, Ian, what have we learnt about Jesus' power so far in Mark? Well, what we see wherever he goes, it just people crowd around him, don't they? Because he's healing people, he's exercising demons uh, from people, he's doing, he's teaching with power as well. And so where, wherever he goes, people are seeing that and they're crowding and flocking around him because just power is just kind of flowing out from him. And this week we come to what you call a Mark sandwich. Well, it's not just you. It's scholars generally, I think, call this a Mark sandwich. Now, what's a Mark sandwich? It doesn't sound that delicious, does it? But, but what, what Mark often does, he does it a few times uh, through the Gospel of Mark, is that he introduces a story, then we are taken away to a different story, and then brought back to the original story. So the kind of the... The initial story is split, in, split into two. I guess that's the bread of your sandwich. And then there's a, another story crammed in the middle there that's our meat. It's almost like a kind of film technique, isn't it? The way it's, it's, way it's set up. Yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting how he does it. He does it at a few different spots, whether it's on purpose. Or, I'm sure it's on purpose. But, oh, absolutely on purpose. Um, but it just shows the kind of level of skill as a, as a writer, uh, Mark is, has. Yeah. In what sense is this a passage today to about a quest? Well, what we, what we have here is that Jesus is kind of asked to go and, and fix something, you know, kind of in the, in the kind of classic sense of a quest, you know, go and slay the dragon type of thing. And here we have a problem. We've got a young lady who's unwell and Jesus is on a journey to kind of go and, and help the situation. And you, you kind of, we, we walk along with Jesus on the, on the quest, on the, on the road uh, to, to help this young lady. What is the quest, the wider quest, though, in this gospel, do you think? I think that, that's a really good question, isn't it? That uh, Jesus, what, what has he come in to do into this world? He has come uh, to bring God's kingdom uh, and so to reclaim the kingdom for the Father. And so that's what we, that's the bigger quest, I think, that's going on. Uh, and we're going to see that as, we, as you kind of continue to work through Mark. This is why Jesus has come into the world. Yes. To what extent does Mark's gospel have a lot of side quests going on? Well, what, that's what we have in Mark is this, this kind of one main thing where we're heading. We're heading towards a specific spot, which is going to be the cross eventually. But um, Jesus is kind of, you know, kind of taken off on all of these in these different paths and different places. Often, the different places that we are in in Mark is very, really important. The locations, uh, because they present different obstacles for Jesus fulfilling his bigger, bigger quest. As you do in any quest, you know, you've got all these little side things which are obstacles to the bigger quest. Okay, well, we'll start with uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Okay, now whereabouts are we today geographically in the story? So we were just in the Gerasenes, which was uh, kind of where Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, so that the kind of the guy Legion, um, 
and well, that's at least the, the name that's given to the uh, the demons. And then, so Jesus has been over there, and it says he crosses uh, again over the lake. So it's kind of probably back into uh, kind of Isra- Israelite kind of territory. The Gerasenes was in Gentile territory. But he's not in Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. We don't get to that until chapter 6. So he's somewhere probably still around the Sea of Galilee, but probably uh, in uh, Israel, te- Israel territory. Now, who is Jairus? We don't know much about Jairus, do we? we just kind of, he's just introduced as a synagogue ruler. Uh, he's probably quite a devout religious person. That, that's all we, we, we know about Jairus. It's, just, it's interesting that he's actually named here, isn't it? That it's not... It's not just a synagogue ruler, but he's actually given a name. Yes, he's obviously somebody of sta- of status and importance. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been named. Either that, or he's known to the religious community, you know, to the Christian early Christian community. So it's either one of the two that he's he's known because of his kind of stature, or he's known because uh, people are aware of who he is. Why is Jairus putting his life and reputation at risk by coming to see Jesus? Well, what we've seen all the way through Mark is all of the religious leaders are against Jesus. Uh, they just keep coming up against him. The, we've seen it with the teachers of the law. We see it with the Pharisees, uh, the Herodians, which weren't religious people, but a kind of a people that followed Herod. All of them have come up against Jesus and they don't like what he's doing. And so we have someone who is a religious person coming in asking Jesus for help. What's the significance of the fact that Jairus is one of the synagogue rulers? Well, he's important, isn't he? Uh, and so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what a synagogue ruler would do. I guess you, you kind of... Uh, kind of he, would, he would have been the head or one of the heads of the local synagogue, I would have thought. Well, you'd be in charge of some of the teaching, wouldn't you? And, and maybe some of the, particularly the training of, of young people. And so he's an important person. I think that that's, that's the kind of point, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Now, is there any significance uh, to the fact that one of the daughters of Israel here is near death? Well, what we have is you kind of up to this point, we're asking the question, will Israel accept Jesus as their king? Uh, and here we have this young lady who is an Israelite, uh, kind of near death. And I wonder if it is an illustrate, you know, kind of Mark is illustrating some of the, the deeper problems going on that no one has accepted Jesus for who he is and no one has accepted him as their king. Yes, and so in some ways this uh, young woman represents Israel. Her sickness represents the, the spiritual sickness of Israel, do you think? Yes, definitely. And you, you, you have that with the, the other lady that we're about to meet as well, in, in a similar predicament, really. Yes, and they're both associated with the number 12. Um, this young woman is age 12. So is there any significance, Rito, to the fact that she that her age is mentioned and that her age is 12, given the associations of 12 with Israel? Probably. <laughs> I hadn't thought too much, deep, you know, kind of quite deeply about that. But, yeah, it's quite, it's quite possible that, you know, her age being is quite important, that 12 is such an important, being, important number for Israel being the, the 12 tribes of Israel uh, and, you know, the significance for that for, for Israelite people. Well, it's interesting that the, the next woman we meet has been ritually impure for 12 years. Yeah. So there's the number 12 again. There's yeah. got to be some symbolism going on there as well as fact. Uh, let's come and read chapter 5, verses 25 to 34. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman... This is the sandwich. So this is the middle. This yeah. is the meat in the sandwich, the, yeah. two, the two halves, and then this is the middle chunk. And there was a woman who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 years. There's the 12 again. 
and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now that's got important ritual uh, Mm. theological meaning, hasn't it? For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing round you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, in what ways is the quest interrupted there in verses 25 to 34? Well, we have, it's a side quest, isn't it? We've got this, this lady come who's also got a problem uh, and her bleeding, uh, you know, when you look at the Old Testament law, anything to do with blood is, is about death. And so you've got a young woman who is on the verge of death and you have a lady who, who's a bit older who's also kind of, kind of showing the symbols of death uh, being blood, and then you kind of you've got Jesus kind of in the middle of all of this, trying to kind of negotiate what's going on. Who is this woman? Do we know who she is? No, she's not given a name, is she? Which is interesting. The Jairus has given the name, but no one else has given given a name in this. It's just some a lady, you know, kind mm. of that's heard about Jesus. Mm. Well, I think we've already dealt with this, but what's the significance of the fact that the woman's been bleeding for 12 years, exactly the same number as the age of Jairus's daughter? That can't be a coincidence. No, I do wonder if there, there's kind of a, a deeper kind of symbolism maybe going on, or illustration at least going on of the, the kind of the wholeness of this, but also that Israel itself is under the curse of death in some way. Yes, I think that's probably what's happening. Uh, is the woman ritually impure? Yes. Uh, and one of the significant things is that a um, a Jewish man would never touch, or you know, kind of this, between men and women, they would never touch each other. You would only only really only allowed to touch family members, so your wife or your your mother. Um, and so, for someone who you don't know to touch you is very unusual for that to happen. And so, and because particularly because um, the unholiness you know kind of passes through touch that, that's what it was seen so you, if you touch a dead body or you touch blood or you touch uh, anything like that what happens you you become unclean yourself mm-hmm. and what's the significance of the fact that jesus doesn't become unclean well this, this is the huge thing rather than him becoming unclean she is cleansed by his holiness and this is the, the massive thing that's going on here is that uh, in jesus you have the, the kind of the undoing of the her unholiness and his holiness is is so infectious uh, and, and it, it pops up all through the Old Testament doesn't it particularly uh, in Haggai I think also in Zechariah you, you and Malachi as well you, you've got this big problem how do we undo our our unholiness now that we've been off in Babylon how do we undo our, our unholiness uh, and God has this vision given this vision in Isaiah that out of the temple will there come these streams of, of cleansing. Uh, and what do we see in Jesus? We see him being the one bringing cleansing, bringing wholeness to this, this lady. Yes, and so we have uh, both daughters of Israel associated with uncleanness and death and the number 12. 
And we have here Jesus, is he being presented as the ultimate priest here in these early chapters of the gospel, uh, maybe even the ultimate high priest, because he's someone who cannot be contaminated by uncleanness and sin? I think you've got several things going on there. Definitely the high, you know, high priest, possibly even temple, you know, and, and that because it's at the temple that the, the priest serves, but it's out of the temple that that holiness kind of comes. That he is the one, he's the altar almost, uh, where you know forgiveness and healing and all of those things flow from. So why does Jesus not become unclean at the woman's touch then? Well, he should, shouldn't he? He should become unclean, but he doesn't, and so I th- I think it's. It's got to be because his holiness is so great that it, it undoes all everyone else's unholiness. But that can only happen because of the cross, and yeah, you know, that's where we're heading to. Um, that yeah, you know, and, and well, because of that, but also because he's God himself, he can't become unclean. Uh, but you know, the, the rivers of cleansing flow out of him because of what he offers through his death and resurrection. I think when you preached on this, you talked about the story demonstrating both fear and faith, Mm. both fear and faith. Now, what did you mean by that? Well, look at the lady's response. It's interesting, isn't it? So you, you, at first, she's afraid of Jesus. uh, And so even though she she knows what's happened, so verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear... I don't know what, what, what she's afraid of. She's just been healed. She knows that. So she's afraid of what Jesus is going to say. But what does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has healed you. It's, kind of, it's quite magnificent, isn't it? It is. But in the meantime, we have another character waiting for his daughter to be healed, and that's Jairus. Now, what, what is going through Jairus's mind while they stop and have this interaction with this other lady? You know, you're on the way to the hospital in the ambulance, yeah, and the, and the yeah, ambulance driver's thinking, "Hey, let's just pull over for you know." We, yeah, sorry, we've got a mandatory break here that we have to. You know, we've been on on call for an hour. We we've got a fifteen minute break that we have to have to you know kind of have. You're in the back having a heart attack. You know, you're thinking, "Oh, okay, that's okay. We need to obey the rules." You know, you'd be beside yourself, wouldn't you? My your daughter is at home potentially you know dying and then we've just we've just taken this break to kind of look after this woman you're thinking what is going on yes and so we we carry on from chapter 5 verses 35 to 43 we read on we see what happens next mark sets this up i mean it happened like this of course but the way mark puts it all together is is genius really mm. while he was still speaking there came from the rulers this is where the story gets really tragic Um, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, yes, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumi, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, something like that. Tal- just, just say it confidently. Talithakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. A lovely practical touch at the end. Yeah. Give her a cup of tea, you know. <laughs> she's just arisen from the dead. Make sure she's fed, she's alive. Yeah. Now, how would Jairus have felt both fear and faith here, Ian? Well, what do you have? You kind of, I mean, you've got that in verse 36, that, that that very thing is what Jesus says to him. But he's afraid for his daughter, you mm. know, what, what's going to happen. Well, you, you would be. Of course, you, yeah, mm. of course you're going to be. And, and they've just spent some time with his other lady, and now they're kind of back on the journey. But look at what he says there in 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. And these, you know, the antidote to fear must be faith. And this is what we see all the way through Mark, is that the only way to overcome fear is through faith. Why would it have been, it's a silly question to ask, but why would it have been hard for Jairus to believe here? Well, how many people do you know that raise people from the dead? <laughs> not, not too many, do you? Uh, and so it, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to understand or even put hope that Jesus is, able gonna, is going to be able to do this. Yes, he re- he's required to have enormous faith, isn't he? That, yeah. that this is, and believe this is someone who can raise the dead. Yeah. Has the quest failed at this point? Possibly. we have to wait and see, won't we? Um, but it depends on the quest that that, that we think is going to be is is kind of happening. Is it to save this little girl from a sickness, or is it actually to to bring her back from the dead? Yeah, it's an it's an ama- This whole sequence is just amazing. You can just picture it. I can just picture it. Mark crea- writes it in such an epic way. You can mm. hear the wailing, and you can you can almost see people weeping. You can picture the scene. Now, what's the significance of the fact that Jesus touches the dead girl's body? Well, again, that makes him unclean. So you touch a dead body and you know you have to go and purify yourself. You, I don't think you can even sacrifice or do anything. Was it seven days that you had to be mm, uh, so. kind of excluded mm-hmm. from that, that type of thing? And so, you know, and if you touch anybody else, they also become unclean. So you, it's, it's quite a significant thing um, that, to do this. And you know, no one does it willingly. You, you kind of in this culture you're not doing it willingly because of the the consequences for you no there would have been uh, gasps of astonishment when jesus touched her i would have thought yeah um and hor- and maybe even horror uh that that he would do such a thing um we probably already answered this why are we told the girl is 12 years old there in verse 42 why does mark bother to include that well it is it's interesting isn't it that, that he, he does include that, those types of details and whether it's kind of part of mark's bigger picture uh, of you know what's going on for Israel, um, that that's a bigger question, isn't it? I've always been puzzled uh, about this in Mark's gospel, but Jesus he goes around doing all these amazing things, and he says, "Yeah, don't tell anybody I've done this." Mm. Why does Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? I don't know because it, it never works <laughs> because they're going to rush out. I mean, if your daughter's been raised from the dead, you can go and tell the neighbours. I would have thought because we just had in the previous story with the. the the guy who's just had all these demons cast out for him. Jesus says, don't go and tell anyone. What does he do? He goes and tells everybody. And here again, you know, it doesn't say that they go out and tell anyone, but you assume the same thing, you know, kind of, Jesus just raised me, raised our daughter from the dead. You know, kind of, you, you are going to tell people that, aren't you? And there's all those people around that would have seen it. Yes, that's right. Um, I think we've, I, you've already answered this one too, but what does this passage tell us about holiness? Well, it, it can't be internally generated, can it? You know, we, we can't generate it ourselves. It's not a, a kind of an inside-out. It must be an outside-in thing, that it must 
come from God himself to us rather than us trying to generate our own holiness by our good works or anything like that. That it has to come from God and it has to come from his touch on us basically in that he has to he has to kind of put himself in us and on us in terms of his holiness to cleanse us. So who is Jesus here then? What do you mean? Who is he? Well, he's God, isn't he? Is that what, is that what you're getting I at? Think, I think that's generally the answer no, I was yeah. anticipating. Well, who else could he be? You, you kind of, you know, if this, if this story is true, he can't be anybody else. He has to be God because, one, no one is able to do the things that he, he's been doing here. No one can do that. But also the fact that he offers cleansing for these people in terms of their holiness, that, that's the bigger thing that's going on, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what does this passage, the whole passage, really have to teach us about fear and faith then? Well, what are we going to, what are we going to, to do? You know, kind of are we going to be afraid of what comes against us, the external things around us? Or are we going to have enough faith that even those, those things exist in our lives, uh, that we trust God enough that he will use them for his good and, and glory and for our good as well, that he's actually using them to, to reshape us and to make us holy like him. Yeah, in what sense does Jesus promise then salvation through hardship? Because there's an awful lot of hardship in this passage. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that we, that we misunderstand is that if we want to be like God, God uses hardship to make us like him. He knocks off the, the edges of us where we're trusting ourselves, trusting in things other than him and show, to show us that we can really trust in him. Uh, and the way that he uses, he uses his hardship, that's the thing that he does. I, I think it's interesting that people often say, oh, I'm going through this really difficult thing. That must be a, a sign from God that I need to get out of this situation. Our first instinct should be, I'm going through this really hard thing. What is God trying to knock off me? <laughs> and reshape in me, in my character, that that needs to be reshaped. Yes, we like um, buildings under construction, aren't we? And with God, with his hard hat on, you know, knocking the edges off us. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what are some of the things today we we might be afraid of? Well, there's a lot to be afraid of, I think, in terms of, you know, where's the world going and kind of particularly where's our culture going? Many people are afraid of those types of things. Uh, and... You know, it's are we heading towards financial destruction and 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 things like that, or you know, societal and cult- cultural destruction as well? They're not things that that I think we need to necessarily be afraid of. Uh, that we can trust God in all of those things. Uh, that He will look after us and he, and He will provide for us. That doesn't mean that though that He will give us everything that we want, mm. or uh, or give us a cushy life without hardship. And no, stress. No, to be a Christian means the opposite, basically, yeah. is that we should expect the opposite. I think you made a, ver- a very relevant point once uh, recently when I heard you preach that we live in an unusual age in that for the last 50, 60 to 100 years maybe in the West at any rate, not, not in other parts of the world, but in the West, we have not been actively and openly persecuted, mm. which has been the case at virtually every other time in, in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah and... and you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it has made us soft in some ways as well. And I think we probably are pushing into a, a period where some of that is being reversed. Um, and uh, you know, in some ways, I think we should not necessarily welcome it, but, but expect it to happen because we're preaching a different kingdom. And if we're not being persecuted, you know, in some way, even in small ways, then there should be the expectation that, that 
it will come and it's okay that it does come because it will refine us, it'll shape us, it'll make us like more, more, more like Jesus. One last question before we close, Ian. Uh, uh, some people would say, well, we see tremendous healing, uh, the Lord Jesus demonstrating terrific healing power in passages like this. Why are we not seeing healing like this in the church today? We, he does demonstrate terrific healing, doesn't he? And it's amazing what he does. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, in this passage, you know, Jesus says that it's your faith, daughter, your faith has healed you in verse, verse 34, that maybe we just need enough faith and that that'll, maybe we don't have enough faith and that that's what, what the problem is. That's not, not the case at all. It's Jesus doing the healing here. And I don't think it's that necessarily Jesus can't continue to heal. Uh, and, you know, it, but it was a manifestation of the kingdom at that point in time. And I don't think the kingdom always manifests itself in that way or has to manifest itself in that way at the time. Not to say that it can't, but I think at this point in time, this is what the signs of the kingdom had to be. So can we uh, expect to still see God healing today? Not necessarily in this way, I wouldn't say. I'm not saying that he can't. I think he can. But I think the expectation that he will, I think, is dangerous because I think it ends up putting the onus on us when he doesn't that maybe I didn't have enough faith or maybe I didn't pray in the right way or maybe I didn't do this or do that when the reason why Jesus is healing and doing these types of things is because the kingdom is manifesting itself at this particular point so the gospel can go out yes I mean we've often encountered folk who've been told by someone uh you uh, and one instance someone who had cancer who was told by somebody uh, you you haven't been healed of your cancer because you simply didn't have enough faith, and this poor woman was absolutely distraught, mm. as anyone would be. That that type of thinking or that type of what people say it destroys people's lives, you know, and their faith often. Yeah. Um, it just is just so disheartening. But maybe God allows those difficult things in our lives to reshape us. Uh, is is probably is something that we don't often think about that these things do happen, uh, and death is is. An unfortunate part of living in this world is that death and sickness and suffering uh, do come into this, do come into us as, as people. Yes, as someone who's been through cancer recently and at the moment is still standing on God's earth, um, I can testify to that. It does change you certainly, um, and it was um, a uh, I was going to say worthwhile. Exp- no, that's not the, the right word. Uh, it was a growing experience it was it was a time of tremendous growth for me as i battled with it and no one ever looks back and goes that was a great time was it <laughs> yeah through through that type of suffering but at the same time you stand on the other side of it and, and you can say to god i see what you're doing oh yeah absolutely and and i grew immensely mm. uh in in th- having gone through the experience of it it, it really sharpens your focus and you, you start to work out what really matters and what doesn't. Yep. Anyway, uh, Ian Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand, as always, brother. Fantastic time talking to you. And um, thanks to our creative team too at Liquid Edge Creative who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Ian, thank you. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
facebook.com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.